1: What is Christian mysticism? Is it something only the great saints practice, or is it something we all can experience? Were the Christian mystics like St. Francis of Assisi or St. Teresa of Avila mild in their manner, above the fray of failures and doubt? Is there a single path to Christian mysticism? How may we create a lively human atmosphere conducive to the unfolding of mystical experience in our lives. The answers to these questions and more serve as a focus for this edition of New Dimensions with our guest, Tessa Belecki. Tessa Belecki, a former Carmelite nun and abbess of a monastic community, studied languages for a career in international relations at Trinity College in Washington, D.C., before entering a monastery in 1967, where she lived for almost 40 years. Currently living as a lay hermit in the mountain desert of Crestone, Colorado, Tessa Balecki is actively involved in Buddhist-Christian dialogue and recently created with Father Dave Denny, the Desert Foundation, a circle of friends exploring the wisdom of the world's deserts to foster peace, understanding, mutual respect, and reconciliation. She is the author of Teresa of Avila, Ecstasy and Common Sense, also Teresa of Avila, Mystical Writings, and Holy Daring, An Outrageous Gift of Modern Spirituality from St. Teresa, the Grand Wild Woman of Avila. She also is a creator of a CD set, Wild at Heart, Radical Teachings of the Christian Mystics, produced by Sounds True. Join us for the next hour as we explore ways to expand our connection with the Divine with our guest, Tessa Valecki. My name is Justine willis toms I'll be your host. Welcome to New
2: Dimensions. Tessa, welcome. Thank you, Justine. I've so admired New Dimensions for decades. And it's wonderful finally to be a part of your good work.
1: Well, thank you so much. I've, I, we feel graced by your presence. So thank you for coming on with us today. I'd like to start with what what led you to the monastic life in the first place. Forty years, more than forty years now. You've been you've been living this life in of. Uh, some sort of uh, deep spiritual introspection, and we think a very quiet life. Some of us might look at it as very quiet, subdued life.
2: But I think we're going to learn something else. So, So how did you begin? It's interesting because when people think of monastic life, they do tend to think of silence and solitude, which is certainly a huge part of it. But what drew me to the particular kind of monastic life that I lived, which was rather avant-garde, we were not exactly a traditional monastic community. What drew me was vitality. What I was most interested in was living life to the hilt. And strangely enough, I guess, from some people's points of view, it was this particular form of life that I found more alive than any other lifestyle I had ever seen. So that's what drew me was the vitality of it, not the asceticism of it, the, the, the vibrant life that was exhibited. You So you didn't grow up as a little girl wanting to be a nun? The last thing in the world that I wanted to be growing up was a nun. I had much more exciting uh, ambitions for myself, and the kind of monastery that I joined actually allowed for a wide variety of expressions. I had uh, always loved languages and loved different people's different cultures, and I wanted to foster good uh, international relations. And that's why I studied languages and thought I was headed for the UN. And in the end, uh, I was sort of ambushed by Christ, ended up in the monastery out of my love for the vitality of it, and remember how Jesus said, uh, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. That to me sums up the essence of Christianity, the essence of Christ, the essence of monastic life, life to the full, Uh, and in that, choosing that lifestyle, I ended up doing a lot of traveling, a lot of speaking, uh, doing a lot of international uh, relations work but from the point of view of spirituality and religion rather than politics and language. In this
1: um, CD set, uh, this this Wild at Heart, you're talking about the Christian mystics and you're talking about Christian mysticism. Now, uh, you you tell the story about being at a conference and people were kind of shocked
2: to hear anything about that there's such a thing that was one of the most eye-opening experiences of my life because i had grown up understanding that there was something more in christianity than mere doctrine than mere ritual than mere formalism than mere moralism i, I just because of my family background, my Polish-American background, I came from a family of very deep faith. So there was something extra always going on in my childhood experience of religion it was never dry to me. Uh, It was very earthy, and there was a sense of mystery about it, partly because I only heard liturgy celebrated in either Latin or Polish. So, uh, it was extremely mysterious, because from a, a logical, rational point of view, I really didn't know what was going on. So, I had access to a deeper level. One of my first speaking engagements out on the road was at a a conference in Seattle, an uh, interfaith conference. And I simply began by saying, well, I'm a Carmelite and I represent Carmelite spirituality, which is part of the broader tradition of Christian mysticism. And then I was just going to go right on with the main theme of my workshop. And everybody stopped me because People were highly versed in Buddhist mysticism, Sufi mysticism, Hindu mysticism. They'd been born and raised in the West, and yet, unlike me, they knew nothing. Uh, not only knew nothing about, they didn't even know that such a thing as Christian mysticism existed. And I was so uh, shocked by this that I realized that an important part of my life's work would be to help people understand that right within our own Western Christian tradition, there is a very vibrant, uh, long tradition of contemplation and mysticism.
1: It, it just reminds me of a phrase that you use or someone that you quote, um, that Christianity has been what's... frisked,
2: spayed, and tamed. Yes, this is from uh, a man by the name of William McNamara. Well, he had a, has a real gift for language. And uh, Christianity is not now what Jesus created it. Well, he didn't even create Christianity. He didn't create a system. You know, at the beginning, Christians were known as followers of the way. Now, to, to call it the way or a way, I think is probably more accurate, is a far cry from an is from Christianity, which then becomes a thing, a very a highly structured. Uh, hierarchical, co- sort of controlled thing that and doesn't sort of formula and a formula exactly a formula. So I, I was lucky enough to be exposed. That's that, I'm glad you brought up that um, frisked, spayed, and tamed uh, expression because the kind of Christianity I I have always known, and the monastic life that I lived was very untamed. And definitely unspayed and unfrisked. It was very wild and creative and dynamic. It was a—it's a, a kind of a cutting-edge Christianity, which I think is the real Christianity. Well, uh, you now
1: when you say wild, I, I know our listeners are—oh my goodness—a monastery with wild parties and this and that and the other. You're talking about uh, a kind of existential wildness, uh, uh, a wildness of heart. I
2: mean, you say wild at heart. Yes, that? it's. I'm talking about, well, a wild party now and then might be part of it. There's nothing the matter with a wild party. When we think about how much Jesus celebrated In His His first miracle was turning the water into wine. First miracle is turning water into wine. At a party. Scripture tells us that uh, people thought he was a a drunkard or a glutton. Well, what must they have been seeing him doing? I mean, he was really living. A wild and wonderful life. So, but when I say wild, I'm talking more about freedom of spirit. I'm also talking about physical wildness, uh, living out in the wilds, uh, living close to nature. Uh, I think that the, the wildness of God is uh, perhaps best expressed in the wildness of nature. I mean, God is like a uh, like a tsunami. I mean, we just never know whats what we're going to experience. And when we, ha- when we turn Christianity into a dull, dry s- system, then it's as though we feel we have God in our pocket, sort of at our beck and call, and we can kind of pull Him out as our little pet uh, and make Him play with us or do what we want, basically, and God isn't like that. God is wild, uh, God is God is definitely untamed. I love how um, C.S. Lewis describes Christ in his Chronicles of Narnia. Remember the Christ figure there is Aslan the lion, and these books I think are extremely important, particularly if you have been turned off by Christianity, but you feel your roots tugging at you—a way of Uh, getting back in touch with your tradition is to read the Chronicles. It's a very fresh look at what the Christian tradition is about. And the central Christ figure is Aslan, the, the lion. And if you've read them, you will remember that the beavers, Mr. Beaver is always saying, Oh, Aslan, you know, he's not safe. He's not a tamed lion. And so, see, Lewis is, was on to this the same thing that I'm talking about that has been the kind of Christ I've known, the kind of Christianity I've known.
1: So you would suggest those um, books
2: for any of us. In fact, you, I think you've said that you've, you reread them. I reread them. I reread them almost every year and seem to go deeper and deeper in them. I never get tired of them. I'm glad they recently have turned them into films. I think they've done a great job of doing The Chronicles. I've hesitated seeing the films because I've, I wasn't sure. If oh, they... i I recommend them. Um, I mean, no yeah. film is ever as good as a book that we see only in our mind's eye yes. in in our imagination. Be, no film can do no, our own imagination exactly. justice, but exactly. I still think it's worth it, um, uh, and I highly recommend The Chronicles of Narnia.
1: I'm here with Tessa Balecki and she is the author of Teresa of Avila Mystical Writings and also the CD set Wild at Heart, Radical Teachings of the Christian Mystics. My name is Justine Willis-Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. I'm Here with Tessa Bilecki, and we're talking about being a wild mystic. <laughs> uh, and she is the creator of Wild at Heart, Radical Teachings of the Christian Mystics. Uh, it's a CD set by Sounds True. And she also is a co-founder of Desert Foundation. And if you want to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, um, desertfound.com dot org that's desertfound.org or go to the new dimensions website newdimensions.org and you can get there from there tessa you suggest um, we're talking about christian mysticism and you suggest that we all are natural
2: mystics this is also an extremely important part of my life's work traditionally there has been a school a strong school of thought in christian spirituality roman catholic spirituality that mysticism was more esoteric or uh, aristocratic and reserved for only a few people and i come out of a tradition where we insist that everyone is called to be a mystic now what first of all what do we mean by mysticism And when I use the term, I mean, uh, let me just stick with one description, although on the CD set, I go into great depth of, of, of a great many different descriptions, which I think is important that we not limit ourselves to one. But my favorite description of what we mean is loving experiential awareness of God. Now, I also talk on the CD set about non-theistic descriptions, and that's important too, but I, I don't think we have enough time to go into that. So, please don't be put off by my use of the word God. I know that's not a very popular word. I must use it if I am going to be true to my own experience. But if that is not a good word for you, then just eliminate it or use whatever word is better for you. But what I want to emphasize is that mysticism is about experiencing the divine. Not talk about the divine, not thoughts about the divine, but an actual living experience and an experience that is loving, and it's an experience of heightened awareness. So, I believe very strongly and come out of a tradition that believes that the mystic is not a special kind of person, but everyone is or ought to be a special kind of mystic. And that there are as many different paths to mysticism, to the experience of God, as there are people. And that's partly why I love what, as Roman Catholics, we call the communion of saints, because in the communion of saints, you have a wild variety of people and paths. So, you have kings and queens, and you have very poor folks. You have highly intellectual mystics. You have uh, illiterates. You have people who live alone. You have people who live in community. You have people who are married, although those... Mystics tend not to be uh, publicized as much, because there's a prejudice against marriage and for celibacy in Christianity. Now that's very interesting,
1: but there are quite there are many many examples of that.
2: Yes, and saying? two two of my favorites are um, Elizabeth of Hungary, who was. Um, madly in love with her husband. The, he was uh, a, a prince of a certain Thuringia, uh, was a, an ancient part of Hungary. And the other great example is uh, that would be more known to more people is St. Thomas More, the man for all seasons, mm-hmm. who had a very um, good relationship with his wife, if you've seen the film, with Paul Scofield. Mm-hmm. And I think this is so important because uh, we, we tend to think of mysticism as something, uh, first of all, it's quiet instead of more vibrant, uh, that there's only one way to do it, that it's more ascetical than celebrative. And that just simply is not true.
1: You mentioned in the CD set um, how, um, when as growing up, you, in the... Uh, Icons that that you would have, like the cards of the saints, these little little replica pictures of the saints, and they all look so saintly, you well, know. Well, the, yes, there was no
2: nuttiness
1: around them. Well, ever. there was
2: no, there was no. Uh, again, I I keep coming back to vibrancy and vitality because to me that is the essence of the Christian life is vitality. And the holy cards, we we used to call them holy cards, and you'd actually collect them. It was sort of like baseball cards. (laughs) And I had my own great collection, but as I got older, I realized there's something really the matter with these. They were all, uh, it was the same thing as the plaster statues that we had in Roman Catholic churches. They were static and you got the impression that these people never made a mistake, never did anything wrong. And part of what I have enjoyed doing is studying the lives of the saints in such depth that I have learned what was the matter with each of them, which is extremely mean encouraging. mean the saints were not saints? The saints. <laughs> but that's the thing is we we equate sainthood with moral rectitude or impeccability or perfection. And that is not what, what it's about. The Being a saint is about being madly in love with God. It isn't about moral, upright, impeccable behavior. So, there are stories of St. Vincent de Paul suffering from a terrible bad temper. St. Therese of Lazier, the little flower, suffered from depression. Uh, uh, one of my favorite stories is of St. Francis, whom we think of as one of the greatest saints, struggling later in his life with chastity, so that he's rolling in the snow and making a a, a snow family, a mother and a father and children. And when his friends saw him doing this, they were totally mystified and said, well, what's, what are you doing, Francis? And his response was, I may father a child yet so the 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 thing about uh, sanctity or the the path of transformation is that it's our very flaws and mistakes and character defects that that end up making us the saint because it's working with our flaws and our imperfections you that know, is the stuff of our path so it's not that we don't struggle. It's that very struggle that is the heart of the path. And
1: you mentioned something that's important to you that that's the saintly quality. Maybe, uh, if I can paraphrase it, is the bounce. Uh, you mentioned the bounce, and and the one uh, the, the big saint was Saint Peter, who had to do a tremendous bounce.
2: Yes, Peter is the perfect example because. He his failure was probably the worst of all, that he denied Jesus less than 24 hours after saying that he would follow him to death. And so, I had a friend who coined this phrase, it's the bounce that counts. The secret to the path of transformation is picking ourselves up again after we fall. That's what uh, is the biggest triumph of all is picking ourselves back up, not the perfection not not falling, but picking ourselves up when we do fall it's the bounce that counts,
1: going back to the idea of saintliness, um there was something you mentioned in in the icons in the, in in depictions art of of the different people the in history and is you mentioned something about uh, seeing a painting somewhere of Jesus
2: laughing? Oh yes, the laughing Jesus. I, I, I. You know the Gospels don't give us a full enough picture. Obviously, what we find there are particular remembrances that the different evangelists chose to record. But once again, when we think about that first miracle of changing water into wine, that Jesus is having a good time at a wedding, and they run out of wine, so He makes more wine, there's this whole sense that we don't find enough in the Gospels and have to imagine that Jesus was a big merrymaker. And uh, he, for, for one thing, look at what a good friend he was. All these women were traveling with him. The, go- the Gospels name a whole series of women who hung out with him. And not only uh, Mary Magdalene and then Mary and Martha of Bethany, but the Gospels mention a Susanna and a Joanna. And My gosh, here's Jesus and his 12 disciples hiking all over the hills of Judea, back and forth between Nazareth and Jerusalem. I mean, they're hanging around a campfire. Uh, What do you think they were doing? I mean, they weren't just spouting uh, pious platitudes. (laughs) They may have been singing camp songs. I'm I'm sure sure they were singing (laughs) camp songs. I'm sure they were doing a lot of things like that. You know, the... J- jesus came out of that great jewish tradition of um there was dancing and so i'm sure he was a he was a a a, a a a great dancer right but we have to use our imaginations as we uh try to understand him better and also look at what poets tell us what um the mystics tell us what artists tell us because there really is an ongoing revelation of who Jesus the Christ is it It didn't just stop at a particular time, and I believe that 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 revelation is unfolding. Uh, day so by that's day more than just the historical
1: Jesus there's something that's alive in the story today
2: yes and that's that's just another good point you bring up that uh, one of our problems in, in Christianity particularly in the more fundamentalist forms of Christianity is that we fixate on the historical Jesus and we think that We know all there is to know and that that there's nothing, first of all, nothing more to discover or nothing more to be revealed. But if we think about the mystical Christ and in the tradition I come from, we look at the church as what we call the mystical body of Christ. We even refer to the cosmic Christ. That's an expression that comes from a person I think is one of the great mystics of the 20th century Um, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin who has really had a huge impact on my life and he talks a lot about uh, Christogenesis or the cosmic Christ, the unfolding of Christ in time and space. So there is, in other words, it's it's happening. It's happening now. It's not all over and done with, and we don't have the whole system all neatly and tidily sewed up. Oh, goody.
1: (laughs) More to come, and more to come in the program. I'm here with Tessa Balecki, and she is the creator and author of Wild at Heart, Radical Teachings, Of the Christian Mystics, uh, a six CD set uh, produced by Sounds True. And she is also the author of Teresa of Avila Mystical Writings. She's also the co founder of the Desert Foundation in Crestown, Colorado. My name is Justine Willis Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Here with Tessa Balecki. And she. if you'd like to be in touch with her and the work that she does, you can go to her website, desertfound.org, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website. She is the um, creator of the CD set Wild at Heart Radical Teachings of the Christian Mystics. And um, Tessa, it, I, I want to get an, a flavor of your life. Um, and, and as an example, possibly, and give some examples of how we too can live in this wildness. There, there is a balance that
2: goes on. Give me a flavor of your life. Well, yes, I would love to do that because what I try to do is live in a way that I think just about anybody could live, uh, elements that everybody can incorporate into his or her own life. Now, it's a little more radical for me in terms of the solitude, because I do live alone in a log cabin without running water or electricity out in the middle of nowhere. And certainly not everybody is called to do that. But everybody is called to periods of silence and solitude, even if that is only for five or 10 minutes a day. And this is another important part of my work is urging people to take that kind of time. I love to talk about silence and solitude as congenial to every human spirit. And I actually know a family. This is not uh, a fictional uh, piece, but I know a family who had uh, 12 children, and they incorporated what they called a quiet hour into every day of their family life and i i visited them during this quiet hour and it was quite remarkable now certainly the two and three and four year olds weren't being as quiet as the 10 and 11 and 12 year olds but from a very early age children got the idea that it was good to be quiet that they were capable of being quiet and that there was a tremendous fruit that could come out of it. So a lot of those children actually grew up not only being very spiritual, but also being artists and um, poets because the quiet nurtured their creativity. So everything is really about balance. My, My favorite image for everything we're talking about really is the tightrope walker. And we have this tendency to think of life in general, and spirituality in particular, as an either-or thing. It's this or it's that. And it's taken me a long time, but I have come to the profound understanding of life as a balancing of the polarities, as a both and an and. So, it would not be good for you to just hear me talk about the wildness and not understand the other side of that, which I would call discipline. I love that expression, disciplined wildness. And if you have that uh, either-or mentality, you think, oh, well, I can only be this or I could only be that. And we're talking about both ends. So there are times in your life to be quiet, still disciplined, and then there are other times to just let everything go and wildly um, celebrate. And you know, when I'm saying wild, I don't necessarily mean I don't mean getting drunk or running naked through the streets. Or although that could be part of it. But uh, I mean, getting out in nature. I mean, uh, singing songs. I mean, drawing pictures. I mean, creating elaborate, extravagant meals that you celebrate with good friends. Uh, Getting dressed up in costumes and making other people laugh, whether it's for Mardi Gras or Halloween, or there are just so many different ways to uh, uh, accentuate the special the specialness of life uh, a, a huge part of it for me is uh, celebrating the sabbath that i i went through a very bad period in my life where all i did was work almost 24/7 came from a poor community small community enormous numbers of responsibilities and I found myself violating Sabbath. And I read Abraham Heschel's book, The Sabbath, and it radically changed my life. I actually stopped working and started playing on Sundays. Now that's, that's another aspect of wildness is playing, mm-hmm. because we live in our, our, our North American society, is utilitarian where everything that we think we should be doing has to have a purpose and a use and and a product. And usually it has to have a monetary value. And so if we were really honest with ourselves and looked deep down into our souls, we would all, I'm sure, admit that the best things in life are free, the best things in life are useless. Just being with family, being with friends, uh, making love, eating good food, where it doesn't have to result in a useful or utilitarian product. There's
1: that, that whole movement, like slow food movement, where you're just with with others and
2: enjoying a wonderful meal slowly. That's a perfect example. Uh, The expression that I coined years ago in my community was recreational cooking, where we would get together, and it was no one person's responsibility to prepare the meal. The very preparing of the meal was recreation, was play, was celebration, was friendship, was lovemaking, if we can use that expression, and we all created something together together. And enjoyed it together, and the preparation of the meal was as integral a part of the celebration as the sitting down and eating of the meal. And when you talk about the Sabbath, you're not
1: limiting it to that traditional uh, Christian sort of way of thinking of it, either on, on, on a Sunday, or the Jewish, it would be Friday night to Saturday night, and and uh, Seventh-day Adventists, I think, do it on Saturday, and, and you know, and then all the different days, but it's like picking one
2: day is what you're talking yes, about. Yes, I'm, I'm talking about, you know how we, we use the word sabbatical, uh, it's usually associated more with academics, but I have a lawyer friend who has a sabbatical coming up, where you just, every the. Biblical tradition is that every seven years you stop, you let the land rest. For example, look at the global implications of keeping Sabbath, where you actually let the fields go fallow for that period of time. I, I, think not so much about the Sabbath as let's use it as an adjective and say sabbatical. That we need, we all need sabbatical time or Sabbath time. So that could mean that five or 10 minutes of quiet every day that I spoke about, or it could be any day of the week that you choose, because perhaps Sunday is not the best day. Uh, per, uh, whatever works for you, the idea is just stopping, getting off the treadmill, getting out of what we could call the, the workaday world and entering into Sabbath celebrative time. or Or another way to, The other expression is to call it leisure time. And by that, we don't mean, um, well, leisure activities like get in the RV or go to um, uh, play um, uh, video games. But my favorite expression of leisure is that it is not the privilege of those who have the time, but the virtue of those who take Mm-hmm. the time or make the time and that's and this is this is an essential part of creating the lively human atmosphere that we need to create if our mystical experience of god of life itself is going to unfold naturally and spontaneously
1: and are are you saying that if we take that leisure time it's not to fill it up with some sort of games or distraction, but it, it
2: really, it, it, there's a kind of spaciousness in it for something else. Yes, there's a, spacious, a spaciousness to it, exactly. It is not goal-oriented. I think that's a, a great way to look at it. So, for example, you, if you were going to be more leisurely or sabbatical, you would simply take a walk, or better, let the walk take you, you wouldn't be walking X number of minutes or X number of miles w- trying to get your heart rate up to a certain point. You would simply be strolling, looking around, and letting life happen to you. You
1: might not be doing 10,000 steps a day. <laughs> you might not
2: be doing your 10,000 steps a day, which is what I try to do as, in my life as a discipline, but then there's another kind of walking that I call my sunrise walk or my sunset walk when I am simply going out immersing myself in the magical quality of those particular times of the day, and I'm not trying to get in. I don't count those steps, right, right.
1: So let's go let's go back for a moment um, to to what we were talking about in the previous section about. Jesus and about the aliveness of Jesus in his life and how it continues to unfold. Tell us, how do you suggest that one, if one were going to look at the Bible and read the Bible and read scripture, how would one go
2: about that? Well, now scripture is very, is can be very problematic for people. For one thing, we, lots of us have had it shoved down our throats for so many years of our lives that all we want to do is regurgitate, and we miss the deepest meaning of the scriptures, which is mystical. First of all, we need to look at the Bible as stories that came out of an oral tradition. Not, They're not systematic teachings. Like when you read the Gospels, you get the impression that Jesus is walking around formally teaching all the time because of the way they're set down in a book or set down on parchment. And Jesus was probably, most likely, spontaneously responding to an existential situation so that we could, for example, pick up the Gospels or even an Old Testament portion and uh, just read it as a story or read it as a conversation, for example. Let's, Let's just take a New Testament story and say it's the one where Jesus turned the water into wine. We seem to keep coming back to that one. And instead of um, reading it in what someone once called uh, a pious coma, which is what we tend to go into when we read sacred texts, we go into a pious coma. So, how can we wake up when we come to these texts? How can we bring what Suzuki Roshi called Zen mind, beginner's mind to the text? Uh, We could have a conversation with Jesus about it. We could be saying, well, now why did you do that? And what was going through your mind? And what did it feel like? And what happened when the wine ran out. and So to, you're saying just to kind of play with it a bit. Absolutely play with it and use your imagination. I mean, that is a very valid form of actual, actually a valid form of Christian meditation.
1: Let's talk about that in just one moment. I'm here with Tessa Balecki, and she is the author or the, of the, of the uh, CD set, Wild at Heart, Radical Teachings of the Christian Mystics. I'm Justine Willis-Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Tessa Bilecki, and she's the author or the creator of the CD set Wild at Heart, Radical Teachings of the Christian Mystics. Um, Tessa, we spoke earlier about your time in the um, monastery. You spent like many years, you were the abbess of the monastery that, that you were associated with. You've been uh, uh, now uh, a lay hermit is what you call yourself. So there was some transition period.
2: Yes, I was a a very uh, happy monk for almost 40 years. And in 2003, uh, my community fell into uh, an enormous uh, crisis, which eventually I will be writing about and saying more about publicly. And things really fell apart, at a time of tremendous pain. I actually was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder at that time. And the bulk of my inner work in the last five to six years has been working precisely with that kind of suffering. We haven't said enough about suffering because uh, suffering is a very real part of our lives, not only around the globe, but our personal lives as well, not only what happens to us externally in terms of illnesses, betrayals, losses, uh, deaths, but also um, inner difficulties as well. Anyway, as a result, that and that's a very important part of the spiritual life, is working with that kind of struggle. So, I ended up having to leave uh, my community. Around 11 of us left at the same time, and that's a story for another time, another book, another interview. And uh, I was uh, struggling with what where did i want to pour my energy and with my friend father dave denny we were just looking at well well what do i feel passionate about and what i really feel passionate about is the desert i fell in love with the desert in 1967 when i first saw it i grew up a connecticut yankee accustomed to lush green but when i saw the emptiness and the spaciousness of the desert Something in me paradoxically just came alive. I see it as the landscape of my soul, basically. I don't see it as empty. I see it as spacious. It's it's really uh, a physical manifestation of what my Buddhist friends call shunyata, which is not emptiness, but spaciousness. And the Desert Foundation is very simple. We explore the wisdom of the world's deserts. That can be the wisdom of the physicality of the desert, the geography, the psychology of it, the spiritualities that grow out of it, the cultures that come out of the desert, with a very special emphasis on the abrahamic traditions that grow out of the middle eastern desert that is judaism christianity and islam and how to build better understanding and reconciliation between those traditions which especially today uh, the the conflicts between those traditions threaten to explode the whole planet basically so you can look at the website to learn more about that Desertfound.org, you know, uh, wanted Desert Foundation, but somebody else had it. But it's right, kind of fortuitous yeah. that it became Desert Found because that's a great play on words. Yes. And and you've actually taken some trips to the Middle East. Yes. I, again, oh, one of my desires is to, is to ride a camel through uh, each of the deserts of the world. Uh, I haven't gotten very far on that, but I love... <laughs> I love camels and I love riding camels. Uh, I've only been to Wadi Rum in Jordan, where I took a camel uh, trekking out into the desert. That's where they filmed Lawrence of Arabia. I, I, I must suggest a book, and and some of our listeners
1: uh, have heard about this from Gail Straub, who did ride a camel across the Sierra with uh, um, Sahara, excuse me, the Sahara uh, with some um, Tuareg people. I
2: just I'm just—I'm so jealous. See, exactly, I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm totally jealous. Just yes. totally jealous. Yes. Yes. There's just something about that landscape that uh, I find. Where, whereas other people find it um, harsh, I find it just utterly restful, utterly restful. And I see the desert as a—it is the landscape of my soul. That's how I like mm-hmm. to describe it. Mm-hmm.
1: What about? Um how we keep ourselves. You mentioned in your CD set about the, the everydayness of our lives as an enemy. We we get we get dulled out by that. How do, how what do you mean by that?
2: I think perhaps the biggest obstacle to living wild at heart, to living a really vibrant life. And I don't like to say spiritual life because all of life is the spiritual life, so you'll notice I I tend to shy away from that kind of vocabulary. Whatever we do daily, we tend to do dully. And very often, it isn't our bad ruts that get us into trouble. It's our good ruts, doing the same thing the same way every day. That So, we suffer from what we could call everydayness or ordinariness in the worst sense of the word, because I actually love the word ordinary. I, I think it's a very positive word. And that's what we mean by celebrating Sabbath, by going wild, that we have to do something different to wake ourselves up out of this good rut that we can get ourselves into. Now, there's some really funny stories about this. Graham Greene used to go to the dentist and get his teeth grilled when he felt that his life had become too dull. Uh, Was it Dostoevsky or Tolstoy used to play Russian roulette? Well, we don't have to be that dangerous or dramatic, but I like to use those examples because they're saying something about the reality that I'm talking about. Uh, we have to do something that signals that we are not merely drones going mindlessly and mechanically through the motions of everydayness. So what what might that be? If you get up early uh, in the morning uh, every day of the week, well, every now and then you should sleep in. Or if you tend to sleep late, well, get up early in the morning or get up in the middle of the night and enjoy the full moon. Uh, If you've never tried to paint a watercolor or write a haiku, challenge yourself to do that. If you never read poetry, if you have to be slogging through um, dry manuals for your work, well, then why don't you every day or uh, at Mm -hmm. least for the Sabbath, read a poem and 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 feel yourself waking up to new possibilities in life because you've challenged yourself with something new. Poetry is very important to you. Poetry is very important to me. It actually saved my life in these last six years of post-traumatic stress disorder. And at this point in my life, I actually would rather be reading poetry to you uh, than um talking spiritual talk to you. And in fact, when I go around now and give retreats, I do far less didactic speaking, and I tend to read, I might suggest a theme, and read poetry, and then let people feel the poetry speak to them, and then share out of their own hearts how that particular poem moves them. You know, one of my favorite poets is um, Mary Oliver. And I forget which of her poems it's in, but she says uh, somewhere, every day I go out into the world to be dazzled by wonder. Now, that's what I mean about breaking out of everydayness. We need to be dazzled by the wonder of life. We need to wake up to the wonder of life. And paradoxically, uh, that kind of dazzling, dazzlement, can come through very deep stillness. Because if we're not silent and solitary and deeply still... We don't see what's there to wonder about. So it's it's a matter of creating new eyes every day. We need, I love this from actually, it's uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa, one of the Greek Orthodox saints, who said, we need new eyes to see new suns. And again, that's what Suzuki Roshi meant when he said, That we need Zen mind, beginner's mind. That's what Jesus meant when he said, unless we become like little children, we can't enter into the kingdom. Because it's Zen mind or beginner's mind or those new eyes are really childlike eyes that see like a child really every day for the first time. Tessa, I'm going to ask you to
1: end with a poem that I requested because it just so dazzled me. Can you share that with us?
2: This is a poem called Christ Came Juggling by Eugene Warren. And we've been talking all this time about the wildness of God or living wild at heart. And from a Christian point of view, why do I even think I can be wild? It's because Christ rose from the dead. And that is a pretty wild experience. That's the heart of this poem. Christ came juggling from the tomb, flipping and bouncing death's stone pages, tossing those narrow letters high against the roots of dawn spread in cloud. This Jesus, clown, came dancing in the dust of Judea, each slapping step, a new blossom spiked with joy. Hey, listen, that chuckle in the dark, that clean blast of laughter behind, Christ comes juggling our tombs, tossing them high and higher yet until they hit the sun and break open and we fall out, dancing and juggling our griefs like sizzling balls of light. Tessa. Thank
1: you so much for being our guest today. Thank you, Justine. I've been with Tessa Balecki, and she is the author of the CD set, Wild at Heart, Radical Teachings of the Christian Mystics. And you can get to her uh, website by going to desertfound.org or the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine willis toms I've been your host